be competing for, with a light show this morning. <clears throat> so before we uh, jump in this morning, I want to uh, make you aware of a couple of events, a couple of invitations that are on our schedule uh, that I'd love for you to consider. The one is, is as we um, seek to be more present in our community and more welcoming of all kinds of people, uh, it's important that we get outside these walls, and that includes uh, being with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, service of prayer for Christian unity takes place tomorrow night, 7 p.m. at uh, St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Church on Purdue's campus. That is where uh, uh, representatives from the larger body of Christ will come together to worship and to pray together, Catholic and Protestant, and we'd love for you to be a part of that if you can. I'd love for us to have a good showing there. And then a week from today, on the 19th at 4 o'clock p.m. at Second Baptist Church, there'll be a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration at 4 o'clock p.m., and we would love for you to be a part of that. I know our uh, African-American sisters and brothers would really appreciate having us there. So I just want to let you know about those things, and uh, hopefully you'll consider at least one, if not possibly both of those, as something you can take part in in the week ahead. So a couple of weeks ago, we began our journey through Mark's gospel, and I asked why the coming of God's kingdom hasn't made a bigger impact on us or in our world. And the, the reality, the example I found was the reality that in the very on, very early on in the Gospel of Mark, in the first chapter, we see two things side by side. We see John the Baptist, the, the first prophet in about 400 years, comes on the scene. The one who announces and proclaims the coming of Jesus. We see that he is thrown in prison. And then we see something else. Jesus proclaims something. Listen to this. After John was put in prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come, has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So John is thrown in prison, and that's when Jesus begins proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That's good news? The reality is that for those of us who seek to know God and follow Jesus and pursue God's purposes in the world, sometimes living out the kingdom of God kind of life will look more like defeat than victory. Sometimes it will look more like defeat. What we see in the news, what we experience, the pain we experience in our own lives and the lives of our loved ones can sometimes tempt us to ask or to say, as I am tempted sometimes, this is good news. This is what the kingdom of God on earth is supposed to look like. Plus, as I suggested a couple weeks ago, the same thing that happened to John the Baptist will eventually happen to Jesus. He too will be arrested. He too will be put to death. And we're going to see hints of that even in today's passage. This is all Mark's way of showing us and his first reader something important, and that is that suffering is part of what it means to follow Jesus, to proclaim and demonstrate life in God's kingdom. Suffering is part of what it means for us to know God and follow Jesus and pursue God's purposes in the world. Yes, John the Baptist has been thrown in prison, and yes, the kingdom of God has come near, and it's time for us to repent. There is good news to celebrate uh, in all this, though it may not always look like it. And so the good news in this week's passage is this. In Christ, God makes all things new. In Christ, God makes all things new. It's something God has done, something God continues to do, something God will do in the future. Uh, we see it in the prophet Isaiah 43, 19, where God promises, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? And God promises to do it again at the end of our Bibles in Revelation 21, 5. He was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything, or literally all things, new. In Christ, God has made all things new. In Christ, God is making all things new. In Christ, God will make all things new. And if we're going to perceive and experience this new thing God is doing, then Jesus says we must repent. And I think uh, when you and I hear that word repent, we are tempted 
to hear it as an angry, uh, screaming a sermon of, of hate and condemnation, a turn or burn kind of command coming from the lips of a street preacher on a corner as he screams at passers-by. But the reality is the Greek word in the New Testament that's translated as re- repent really only means, most straightforwardly, simply, change your mind. Change your mind. It's not the kind of changing of minds that says, I used to like dogs and now I like cats, like that would ever happen. (laughs) It's bigger than that. It's the kind of change of mind that affects our entire way of life and the way we go about living in the world. And when when I think of this kind of change of mind, this kind of repentance, my mind, as I was working on this, immediately went to a man I used to know, a man named Eric. And by the time I met Eric... Uh, he was a middle-aged man, his children were out of the house, but at an earlier point in his life, before he'd come to know Christ, Eric was an alcoholic, and he was abusive to his wife and daughters. And then something happened to him, uh, something catalytic, something very meaningful happened to him that he never talked about because he didn't like to talk about that time in his life. And whatever it was, was strong enough and powerful enough and had enough of an impact that Eric just changed his mind. He just changed his mind. He went cold turkey. He never attended AA or anything like that that I'm aware of, and I think that's unusual. Most people can't do that. I think there are different ways that we change our mind and repent, and those of us who need help and assistance, as most of us would in any situation, go and find that, whether that's AA or something else. But for Eric, he just changed his mind, stopped drinking, and Christ began to take more and more control of his life, and he was a a very different person by the time I met him. He simply repented. He changed his mind, and it affected the rest of his life from that day on. He never touched another drop. But as it turns out, even with that great of a story, as it turns out, changing our minds is not as easy as we might think. According to Robert Sapolsky, professor of neuroscience at Stanford University, changing our minds is actually easier when we're younger. <clears throat> That is, we get less and less open to novelty and new experiences as we get older. Research has shown that if you're not listening to a certain kind of music by the time you're 28 or 30 or so, there's a 95% chance you will never listen to that kind of music. That's a little depressing. So when Jesus comes along announcing God's kingdom on earth, he's not going to do it just by giving us more information, because guess what else? More information does not usually result in a change of mind either. It takes something else. We need power, we need drama, we need emotion, we need some kind of catalyst. Any story, any movie you ever watch, any story you ever read, the characters don't change their minds until something happens. Watch it, you'll be able to see every story you ever read, every movie you ever see differently, because the only thing that gets a character in a movie to change their minds is something dramatic or difficult or painful happens, and they must change the way they live. It's not going to happen by more information. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't just, we need a catalyst, and Jesus doesn't just teach and preach on the kingdom of God. Jesus demonstrates the kingdom of God, and our passage is going to show us how he did it and how people responded. In the past two weeks, we have been introduced to the ministry of Jesus through the ministry of John the Baptist, through a whirlwind of vignettes of Jesus' early ministry, healings, exorcisms, crowds coming in, time that Jesus spent in solitude and prayer when it all got so hectic when he felt the father since since the father was leading him to go and preach to other villages and towns 
as well. And then right at the end of chapter 1, we discover that after the man with leprosy has been healed by Jesus, and Jesus has clearly instructed him not to tell anyone about his healing, we read this. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. See, God's kingdom was attractive to many people. God's kingdom is attractive to many people. Now, it's true that most of those people wouldn't say they were looking for the kingdom of God. They were following Jesus everywhere because they wanted to see miracles, because they wanted healing. But what they don't know is that actually reveals a core desire underneath that what they're longing for is the kingdom of God. And this is something we dare not forget. Everyone we know, everyone we have ever known or will ever meet longs for the kingdom of God. Everyone we know, everyone we will ever meet, everyone we've ever known longs for the kingdom of God. Every single human being. As a 17th century French theologian and physicist Blaise Pascal put it once, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every single human being that cannot be filled by anything else in all of creation, only by God revealed to us in the love of Jesus Christ. Everyone longs for the kingdom of God. They just may not know it yet, or at least may not know that's what it's called. The same is exactly true for all of creation, if we read a little more deeply. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verses 19 to 23, that all of creation groans for its redemption and for its liberation from decay. The kingdom of God is everything. And it's everything when it comes to the mission of Jesus as well. And in the coming of God's kingdom, God is making all things new. And the crowds wanted in on that newness. They longed for the kingdom of God, though they may not have called it that or known that's what it was. And then we enter into chapter 2 in a brand new section of the Gospel of Mark where God's kingdom is fleshed out in the world. And while our passage this morning uh, technically is only supposed to go to verse 22 of chapter 2, it's actually a part of a new section in Mark that goes from chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. And if we look at the structure that Mark has given to this section, we'll see that each of its smaller subsections make uh, the best sense as we discover this structure. So without reading through the entire section, let's just walk through and summarize and find the pattern here. Section uh, opens up with uh, the first section, is chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, with Jesus returning to home base, the city of Capernaum. He's been out, he's been going to nearby villages, and he's been preaching the good news of the kingdom as he felt the Father had led him to back in chapter 1. And now he's home. And the crowds gather again. And Jesus begins to teach them as well. And then four men come along, and they're bringing with them their friend, a paralyzed friend who's on a mat. And they get to the door of the house where Jesus is teaching, and they can't get in because there's too many people in the door. So they go around the back of the house, and it's likely the house was like uh, lodged into the side of a slope or a hill. And they climb up on the top of the roof, and they dig through the roof, uh, create a big hole, and they lower their friend down in front of Jesus. They're, they bring him there because they want Jesus to heal him. And yet Jesus simply says to him, your sins are forgiven. This upsets the religious leaders, as always, and so Jesus replies, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, Jesus, I, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, 
take your mat and go home. And he did. Jesus forgives the man, heals the man, and demonstrates that God's kingdom is present and that God's kingdom, that God is making all things new. He's made his body new and whole. He's made his life with God new and whole as well. Then in verses 13 to 17, Jesus calls the tax collector Levi to follow him. And then he has dinner at Levi's house with all of his tax collector sinner buddies. And the word sinners there is not your garden variety, but garden variety sinners that we may think of ourselves as from time to time. These are, the, the, the weight of the word is these are wicked and immoral people. And in that culture, those with whom you shared the table mattered. It was called table fellowship. And here Jesus shares table fellowship with the wrong people according to the religious leaders. And so they grumble about this. And when they grumble, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Even those of us who may not know a lot of what Jesus has taught and said would perhaps recognize that saying of Jesus. So these first two subsections in this larger section show us Jesus dealing with sinners. And then we're going to skip right over the middle section. We'll come back to it in a minute. Keeping in mind that what is in the middle of all this is going to determine how we understand the rest of it. It's going to tie it all together. Skipping down to the next subsection then, Mark introduces to us two passages on keeping the Sabbath. First we had two passages on sinners. Now we have two passages on keeping the Sabbath at the end. In verses 23 to 28, Jesus and his disciples walk through a field. They're picking off heads of grain and they're eating them. And the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are upset because to do so on the Sabbath is to work on the Sabbath and therefore they're breaking the Jewish law. Jesus then quotes a, a story about King David and his men when they went into the temple and ate bread they weren't supposed to eat. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus shows himself to have authority to reinterpret the Jewish law. You see, Sabbath is not merely law. Sabbath is a gift. It's rest. I had a friend in, uh, in Cleveland, uh, Cindy. She was married to a Jewish man, and they would often spend holidays, Jewish holidays with, uh, with her in-laws. And one segment of that family was very, uh, very orthodox in how they kept Sabbath. Uh, they did nothing, and, and she would have conversations with them, and uh, she would say, how do you do it? Just have a day where you don't do anything. And her, her relative said to her, um, well, think about it, Cindy. Uh, what, if, what would it be like if someone said to you, there's one day a week when you can't do any house cleaning, any cooking, anything? And Cindy said, well, that would actually be nice. <laughs> it's a gift. It's not just a law. In the final subsection, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand, again, on the Sabbath, which, surprise, surprise, the religious leaders also condemn. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. You want to know what makes, what makes Jesus angry? It's this. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And so again, Jesus reinterprets the Jewish law. Sabbath uh, was first and now we're moving into something else uh, about the Sabbath as well. You, 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 you heal on the Sabbath. You can't eat grain on the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. Jesus reinterprets that. He gives them a new way of thinking. And now we know that proclaiming, 
and demonstrating and bringing the kingdom of God on earth. That seeking to know God and follow Jesus and pursue God's purposes in the world is dangerous business. It can get you killed. Already, very early on in the Gospel of Mark, the religious leaders are plotting to put Jesus to death. In the coming of Christ, in the coming of all things, in the making of all things new, the kingdoms of this world are in conflict with the kingdom of God, and speaking truth to power can get you killed. It's true for Jesus, it can be true for us as well. The corrupt ways of the world, and as we're going to see, the old ways of religion must fall when God does this new thing in Christ Jesus. So for the Bible study nerds out there, if we diagram this section, it looks like this. And it's a beautiful example of how this works. First section is Jesus healing. Last section is Jesus healing. Second section is Jesus eating. Next to last section is Jesus eating. You can see the, the, the structure is very clear there. To add to it, first two are about sinners, last two are about Sabbath. So everything looks nice and balanced here. And So now we get to come to the middle section which is the key, as I said, to the whole thing. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and by that, he's hinting that he will be taken, he will be arrested and killed. And on that day, Jesus says they will fast. We stick that in the middle and things begin to look different. This is what holds it all together, this new thing God has done in Jesus. So we still have heals, heals, eats, eats, sinners, Sabbath. But right in the middle, which all of this is pointing to, Jesus parties. He doesn't fast. He parties. Why? Because there's new wine, he's going to tell us. Jesus pushes against the way everybody, every religious person would have thought you should be behaving. He doesn't fast, he parties. It was the practice of the Pharisees to fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. It was also apparently the practice of John the Baptist followers to fast. And, but Jesus' disciples do not fast. Why? Unlike all of the other, I don't know if you noticed it, but unlike all of the other accounts so far in this, in this passage that we looked at, this is just a question. It doesn't appear to be an attack. It's not, this time it's not the religious leaders who come and ask Jesus a question to accuse him of something. It's just some people. Some people. They want to understand Jesus' new way of life. Everyone else is fasting, Jesus. Why don't you or your followers fast? And Jesus does not do away with fasting. In fact, he says a time will come when he is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And the early church, we know, did in fact encourage Christians to fast twice a week as well, but on different days than the Pharisees, the didache, a first century discipleship manual says it this way, let not your fast be with the hypocrites, the Pharisees, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but do your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Nevertheless, Jesus uses a mini parable to tie it all together and to answer their question, why don't you or your disciples fast? He explains, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. New wine demands new containers, new ways of thinking, a changing of their minds. 
repentance. New wine is poured into leather wineskins to age and ferment, but the new wine that was poured into old wineskins would damage the older, more brittle wineskins as the wine fermented and caused the skin to expand. Everyone knew that's not what you did. You only poured new wine into new wineskins so that the skins and the wine would not be ruined. No use crying over spilled wine. Just put it in the proper container and you won't have to. Likewise, a new unshrunk patch of cloth sewed onto a tear in an old garment will only make the tear worse when you put it in the wash. New things require new approaches, new understandings, new ways of being in the world. It's not the time for fasting. It's time to celebrate because God in Christ is making all things new. How we relate to sinners, how we view religious rules and liberty, and what we understand God expects of us. We're no longer going to fast, Jesus says. We're going to celebrate with joy. This is the way. This is the way. The religious leaders believed that the thing that would bring God's restorative work and kingdom on earth was a stricter adherence to the rules. But they didn't count on the grace of God. As it turns out, the kingdom of God comes to Israel and comes to us all, whether we're ready for it or not. It comes to us as a gift. And it's time to throw a party with tax collectors and sinners or a wedding feast. It's not time to mourn and weep and fast. It's a gift, but if we want to enjoy that gift, we do have to change our minds. We do have to change our minds. We do have to repent and choose to enter into the way of life Jesus offers us, the kingdom of God. Jesus is the new wine that doesn't fit with all of these old ways of understanding and doing things in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong, except it does belong. The new wine God has given us in Jesus does belong, and it needs new ways and new containers and and a new mindset to be fully experienced and enjoyed by us. So if God in Christ has made and is making all things new, how are we to respond to this good news? First, if you haven't already done so, if you haven't already changed your mind about these things, if you haven't already repented and entered into the kingdom of God and the joy that is there, today is the day to change your mind. Today is the day to make the choice to lay down your sins, to lay down your fears, to lay down your preconceived ideas about who God is and to enter into the kingdom of God. Ask Jesus to pour his new wine into your heart, your life, and your way of life in the world. That's where it starts. Come down, ask for prayer during the closing signs if you want to, uh, songs if you want to, and we will be glad to pray with you, or simply check the box on the back of your communication card that says you want to know more about what it means to know and follow Jesus. Put it in the offering plate. If you've never changed your mind, today is the day to change your mind. Second, let me suggest a few questions for reflection. And I don't know what your experience is, but my experience is I often, when I'm reading the Gospels, I choose to identify with Jesus and the disciples. Yeah, you go get them, Jesus. But maybe what would it look like if, as you read this and reread this passage, instead we chose to identify with the Pharisees or the teachers of the law instead? Are we partnering with Jesus in the new thing God is doing, or are we opposing him? Are we standing in the way of the kingdom of God or are we walking in the way of Jesus? 
If we were the religious leaders in each of these situations, what questions would Jesus want us to ask for ourselves? And this is, here are three. You could find more. Here are three. And I took what were basically negative examples in the gospel, in the reading, and I, turned them, I tried to turn them into more positive questions. First question. How can I practice radical forgiveness in my life this week? How can I practice radical forgiveness in my life? Is there someone from whom you are withholding forgiveness? Is there someone uh, you are drinking bitterness toward uh, like poison and hoping it's going to kill somebody else? Is there someone you need to forgive? How can I practice radical forgiveness in my life this week, this day, this hour? Second question. How can I make room in my life and relationships for people who I've previously seen as wicked and immoral? This is a hard one. How can I be more hospitable and gracious and welcoming to those whom I've previously excluded or shunned? Doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we have to, that we are condoning everything wicked and immoral people do. It means that we are choosing to extend the same grace, love, and mercy to them before they repent that God extended to us before we repented because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It means, as the Apostle Paul says, that it's not God's judgment that's going to lead us to repentance. It's God's mercy that leads us to repentance. And perhaps it is also our mercy that might lead others to repentance as well. How can I make more room in my life and relationships for people whom I've previously excluded as wicked and immoral people? And finally, how can I practice joy and celebration in this new thing God is doing in Jesus in the coming year? Very abstract. I'm not sure exactly what it means to do that, but I would like for us to discover in our own lives what would it look like for us to be the kind of people who could celebrate life and the goodness and beauty and love of God, who could find joy in this new thing that God is doing in Jesus? What would that look like for you in the coming year? What might happen if you and I began to look for ways to practice these three things in our lives, in our relationships, outside of these walls and inside these walls? What new wine might God bring out of you or out of us? What new ground might God break open even mid the pain and suffering in the world? What might God cause to grow out of that ground? Or what might God build on that ground? What new power, what new freedom, what new passion might we discover? And might others begin to see in us as we practice the way of Christ in the world? As we choose to walk the way of Christ more freely and more faithfully. Let's, let's take time this week to reread today's passage several times prayerfully to reflect on these three questions and any other question or observation God might reveal to us. And let's dream a bit about what it might look like for us to take a few risks in the coming new year as individuals, as households, and as a church community. And then I want you to do me a favor. If you do something, if you sense God is telling you to do something, you step out, whether that's uh, an answer to one of these three questions or something else that God shows you, and you see God at work in your life or in the lives of others because you've taken this step, tell me about it. Email me, call me. I want to hear what God is doing. I think we all need to hear what God is doing. We need to celebrate what God is doing because God is doing things. I just don't always hear about it. I'd like to know it. I'd like you to do that for me.
Let us go forth and let us be those who carry in us the new wine of the kingdom of God and let it overflow out of our lives and into the lives of others and into the world. Would you pray with me as we close? God in heaven, we give you thanks this day for your goodness to us in Christ Jesus, for the new wine that you have poured out into the world and into our lives. And we ask, Lord, I, ask, I pray especially for those who might be here today who have never made that initial step, never repented, never changed their mind about you and about their way of life in the world. And I pray you give them the grace and the humility to do so. Whatever steps they need to take, Lord, help them to take those steps and to submit to you and to cry out for your mercy and grace. I pray for the rest of us, O oh God, that whatever steps we need to take to live more faithfully into that freedom, into that power and passion that new wine brings us, Lord. Help us to rediscover it within ourselves and within you and within one another. Help us to live faithfully and to go out and live our lives as if we know the, the reality that the kingdom of God has come, as if we know the reality that you are, in fact, in us and through us, and sometimes in spite of us, making all things new. And help us to jump on board with that as we celebrate your goodness to us and your grace to us in all of these things, Lord, as we continue in our worship out of our gratitude for this new wine. Lord, help us to give back to you a portion of all you have given us. Help us to give faithfully and cheerfully. Help us to steward well over these and all your gifts that your kingdom might be nourished in us and through us and in the world. And may you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.